Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Amandine Gay, who is a filmmaker, producer, writer, activist, and transracial adoptee who grew up in France and now living in Canada. We discuss her adoption story and how she navigated her identity. Amandine also shared about her creative work and the importance of resting and taking care of self. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I am Christelle Pellicure, your host, and I am today joined by a very wonderful and talented, amazing woman, Amandine Gay. Amandine Gay divides her time between creation and advocacy. Uh, she's a filmmaker, producer for Speak Up in 2017, a story of France's own in 2021. She's a writer scholar for A Chocolate Door in 2021. And she's also a feminist activist and founder of Adoptee Awareness Month in the Francophone world. She defined herself as a political author working to reclaim the narrative as an act of liberation. In 2022, she moved back to Montreal to fulfill this ambition by creating a Black-owned production company called Kaisa Productions. You can all follow uh, Amandine in French and in English on social media and Ophéo uh, Negra. Amandine, bienvenue, welcome. I am so excited to, uh, to have you here. And um, uh, well, we've been trying to, to have this conversation for a while. And one of the reasons I really wanted you on this podcast is I just love the creativity that you have. And um, I'm also involved in film. Uh, so I'm really interested to hear all the work that you do in that space. So welcome again. And to start with, can you tell our audience your uh, story of origin, where you were adopted from and at what age? So anything you're willing to share with us? So like, well, um, I like origin stories, like, uh, you know, like superhero movies <laughs> or like the villains. It's like they always have a, an origin story. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a nice way to start. So thank you for, for having me. Um, I'm really happy that there are those spaces now, um, you know, for younger adoptees or even older adoptees who maybe uh, never got, you know, um, the opportunity to connect. I know I really missed that when I was a kid. 
So me, I grew up in uh, rural France in the 80s, 90s. So I was born in 84. And, you know, like the colloquial uh, way of saying it in French is uh, born under X. So it means uh, closed record adoption. And so um, at the time when I was born, uh, there was supposed to be no way to find your birth parents. And sometimes their info would not even be uh, recorded uh, in the file. So, um, so yeah, so born under secrecy or, or closed record adoption, I think would be the most, uh, the closest way of saying it for Anglophone, like uh, UK or North American um, audiences. And so, yeah, I grew up in a white family uh, near Lyon. Um, the only two black people in the village were my brother and I. So I got a brother, an older brother who's adopted too. Uh, he's from Martinique. I Later in my life, around at 35 years old, I found out that I was from Martinique with uh, commercial DNA testing. But yeah, I grew up uh, not knowing where I was from, apart from the fact that I was black, obviously. So that, that was an info that I got very early on because racism uh, in the countryside is the real thing so i think that you know as soon as i started understanding what was going on around me i i understood uh, that being black wasn't the coolest <laughs> the, the coolest group to belong to at the time at least i mean it's still not maybe it's the coolest group to belong to but uh, it's still uh, the most one of the most attacked so it's like we have to deal with both and yeah you know really experiencing isolation lack of representation the 80s, 90s in France, there was almost no black people on television, for instance. I mean, from the news to fiction, the rare black people you would see were athletes. And so from my generation, I've talked about it a lot because it was the first time I saw a black adoptee on screen and her name was Surya Bonali. She was an ice skater and she was like a great champion. She was amazing, but she was also facing a lot of discrimination in the sport. So I think there was like a lot of identification and also because we're not, we don't have that many year age difference, you know. Um, and so when I was a kid, like I was obsessed with Surya Bonali, still am, uh, you know, one of the dreams of my life would be to direct her biopic. <laughs> uh, yeah. As long as it's not being released, I'm like, I still have a chance, you know. Um, so yeah, um, it was really important for me. I think, you know, that sort of informs my career now as well of like producing archives and images or texts um, because I was really lacking anything resembling me as I grew up. Oh, I can relate to Soria Bonnelli because I was watching every competition on TV at the time as well. And yeah, she's still, I'm still in admiration of how she navigated that space because it was really tough for her in terms of racism and how judges were you know, dealing with her. So it's, yeah, to me, she's also someone I would love to meet in person and really to hear her experience as an adoptee uh, in France. But yeah, she's she has really given me, I think, a hope in a way, because, you know, she was the only Black adoptee I knew around at the time, on TV, of course, but because all the achievement that she she did I was also very like oh yeah you can do this if she can do it you can do it so she's definitely exactly uh, she's definitely a good model for I think for a lot of adoptees in France at that time but for, coming yeah. back to you not knowing where you're coming from how has that affected your own identity as growing up because uh, I am guessing that it's in your adulthood you found out you're from Martinique so uh, during the whole yeah, period. Martinique and Morocco. And Morocco, wow. <laughs> What's yeah, that? my birth mother is from Morocco. Wow. So what I would say, I think, is that it gave me sort of um, 
it made me black first. And what I mean about that is that in France, for the longest time, black people would refer to their origin uh, country, you know, and there was a strong divide whether you were from an African country or whether you were from the Caribbean. You know, I even remember growing up, you know, like there would be tensions between people from the Caribbean or people from Africa. So again, now I'm 39. And uh, you can see now the youngest generations in France will, you know, describe themselves. People, I would say, from, you know, their mid-20s and under, or even even the 30s, they will, you know, consider themselves Black. And they might say, and I'm also Senegalese or whatever, but they are going to consider themselves Black French. So I think that for me, it was like, because I couldn't access a particular identity, my thing was like global Blackness, you know, so... Uh, as a kid, I was obsessed with uh, South Africa because, you know, like there was all the things going on around apartheid and Nelson Mandela and stuff. And I was obsessed with the U.S. because the only black content we would get was coming from the U.S., you know. So uh, the Prince of Bel-Air, French Prince of Bel-Air, you know, uh, um, any any identification, even if we can't really talk about him anymore. But I mean, the Cosby show was the big thing, you know, like all the black representation we got was coming from the U.S., at least for me. So, you know, I think that I sort of like made a mashup, you know, like I was like, okay, I cannot only be just black to be insulted, you know, because I think that was the thing, like my first experience of blackness in the countryside was to be, you know, like was anti-blackness, you know, like that's, that's the main thing I got. Uh, contrary to people who will grow within their culture and you're going to get like, you're going to be taught the language, the religion, the history of your family, you know, like a lot of cultural practices and references. So being black isn't just being discriminated against. But for me, it was like being black was mostly <laughs> discrimination, racism, insults. So I really felt, you know, like I can explain it like that now, you know, like when I was a kid, I just did it because I think I needed something positive and, and uh, yeah, positive to link to blackness. And so I got really into, you know, like uh, Black American music, you know, really into the plight of Black people worldwide. You know, like that was that was my thing, like trying to. And also, I, as soon as there were Black people around me, I would uh, I would try. And and so, like, apparently from a young age, I would follow Black people at the supermarket. You know, like that's the thing that my mom told me, like, that they would find me, you know, like standing next to Black people at the supermarket. I hope I felt like those people must have been like, what is this child doing? <laughs> where, where is she following me <laughs> in the aisles of the supermarket? <laughs> I would do that. And I was seeking Black friends, you know, so I was lucky in my school uh, when I was seven, uh, one of the kids that got in was mixed race, but her father was a Black American uh, professional basketball player from a team near Lyon. And that's a family I've really, you know, uh, sort of like invested like I was at their house once a week they took uh, they took me to holidays with them and I think you know the father also understood that I needed that so you know they took me to the states actually for months with them on a holiday when I was 13 and uh, without my parents so it was my first time immersed in a black family you know on my own uh in Washington DC which is really black what which was really black at least at the time so like you know, all those things, like I was sort of like trying to make my my black soup, you know, it's just like, <laughs> just trying to create something out of nothing, basically. Yeah, yeah I can relate. I mean, um, growing up in, in the real France, 
you have to do whatever you can find to to build that. Uh, and I think we grew up about the same period because I was watching the same TV show than you. Yeah. And uh, it's a time you will hear Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson exactly. on the radio. So yeah, it probably is the same era <laughs> that we're sharing. So how, I I know that your your work, your creative work, is. Uh, very much around identity as well and identity of black women uh, and also around adoption. Can you tell us a little bit about that part of your work? Yeah, well, you know, I think again, I think it's been mostly about creating images, telling stories or, you know, uh, the book is an essay, but it's really uh, based on my, it's an autobiographical essay. So I think it's really that um, at some point, you can't just uh, keep waiting for someone to maybe tell your story, right? You know, like to me, it was just like, I'm going to try to tell it myself. And by my story to me is always like a collective story, you know, like I, I don't see what's the point of just telling my story uh, because also I think it has more power. You know, for instance, for the first film that was called uh, Speak Up, it was about the experience of Black uh, Francophone women uh, in Europe, you know? And I think that it has more power when you hear 24 Black women uh, discussing, you know, similar topics and seeing how they are affected by those issues the same way. You know, even if they are really different, all of them, because, you know, in the film you have uh, people who are uh, Black women who were born in France, uh, those who were born in uh, in Africa, those who were born in the Caribbean, those who... Uh, who were, you know, uh, believers, uh, whether, you know, Muslims or Catholics uh, or Jewish women or those who are not and the queer women, you know. And so I simultaneously wanted to show how diverse, you know, the Black community was, which is also a thing that we are really lacking in representation. You know, like when you look at films, for instance, I'm like, for instance, I often say I'm really looking forward to have like great uh, black villains in terms of women, you know, like complex uh, characters, not always like the nice nurse, uh, you know, especially if, he's a, if she's a bit fat, you know, or the good friend or whatever, you know, like people that would have like real depth, complexity uh, of character. And so I wanted to show just like black women that I know, you know, that not all black women are straight, <laughs> not all black women uh, have the same perspective on life and religion and raising children, but uh, some things for us uh, are very similar. I don't think I've ever met a Black woman with whom I've discussed sexual fetishization and who told me, oh, it never happened to me. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, for instance, I wanted to show how some stereotypes uh, are really still very present, you know, and that if you tell a Black woman, oh, panther, feline, like I wouldn't even have to ask a question for the film. I, w- I was just telling, oh, if I say panther, feline, you know, what do you think? And then they would start telling me all their stories of all the times they were uh, exoticized and and um, and sexually harassed or, you know. So that's that's how I feel like what I like about film, for instance, is that through empathy, you can really push the political discourse and push the listening of the people who are watching the film. You know, I, I've been an activist a long time and I would say like a more traditional activist as in I was in feminist groups, I was in anti-racist groups, but I, I was always frustrated because I felt that you have to, most of the time, you are preaching to the choir, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because like, especially in France where we don't really have a tradition of um, of um, pa- pacifist 
exchange, you know, like people get heated really quickly, start chatting at each other and no one listens to what anyone else has to say, you know, and that's not the case uh, with film. I often say that, you know, cinema theater audiences are sort of like captive audience. You don't see people standing up in a cinema and yelling at the screen saying, I don't agree. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, and so to me, I I've often said that for a speak up, but it's true for a story of one's own, you know, uh, for me, speak up is has been the first experience for a lot of uh, white people, but also maybe black men, to have to listen to black women for two hours without interrupting them. And I think that when you are not interrupting and when you are deeply listening, which happens after, you know, like a few minutes or hours of listening to someone's life story, then you are really getting into the depth of it. And then maybe you are starting to think like, oh, you know, I have touched black women's hair before and it's not okay, you know, or I have, you know, like, I really feel that through film, you can get this level of empathy of listening to the groups that are marginalized and usually spoken of, spoken for, but never listened to seriously. You can get this sort of a, of a, of a passage, you know, and it was the same for a story of one's own. I don't think that there was a French film, a political film that, uh, you know, uh, joins the voices of several adoptees. There are five uh, adoptees in the film, transnational adoptees that are not adults, but they are telling us their lives from infancy. And so getting those perspectives and hearing about what it was like, how they felt as children, how they felt as teenagers, as they felt, uh, how they felt as young adults, you know, and having to listen to them for an hour and a half and being in their shoes because you are in the middle of their archives and you are, you know, in the middle of their lives, I really feel like that's the same, you know, that's the same thing. It's about displacing people. It's about making them feel what we felt and maybe then trigger at some point some change. Like, um, I, I don't think people come out of the cinema and are no longer, you know, racists or, or having, you know, all those stereotypes about adoption. But I really feel that it's hard if you've watched this film to come out of the theater uh, the same, exactly, you know, and that's that's sort of like, that's my aim. That's why I like film. And I think books, the first book was uh, Chocolate Doll. Chocolate Doll, my my first autobiographical essay, was really uh, academic too. But it's because those issues, reproductive justice, uh, adoption, are so not politicized in France. Like we are 20, 30 years late compared to the UK, the US, where there's already been so many books by adoptees, political books, academic books, autobiographical, you know, memoirs and stuff. So you don't have to be sort of like so precise. But to me, it was like one of the first times reproductive justice as a concept was, you know, being explored through a personal tale of adoption. So I really wanted to show that there is actually a framework for those issues. Maybe most of those books or articles haven't been translated to French, but this is like a, this is a scholarship that exists. So, you know, like, um, that's kind of like the same thing. I feel it's easier to to get to the political through personal experience. So that's why it's an essay, but an autobiographical essay. And uh, my next book is gonna be the same thing, but less academic. I will say more on the memoir side, and it's gonna be on white supremacy. And that's pretty much the same thing. It's like to show how, could I say that? How mundane white supremacy is. People think usually that it's like, I don't know, the KKK or uh, something extreme. But white supremacy is teachers telling black children that they should not pursue, you know, university because it's going to be too tough for them and uh, putting them to like, you know, a vocational school. You know, that is one of the manifestations of white supremacy. It's not violent, 
you know, physically or verbally, but it's actually rooted in a deep, you know, belief that black people are inferior intellectually, you know? So like that's, I'm always trying to get to, you know, how can I get people to see the world through my eyes, basically? <laughs> you know, just like maybe if you saw what we saw, you would you would not say what you say, you know, <laughs> or act like you act. You know, that's my yeah, I think that's the that's the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And where can people see the your films and where can they get your book as well? The first film recap, the first film is on movie. So this this can be watched uh, worldwide, depending on the times, because like I don't know, like you know international rights so sometimes a film is available in one country but not others and stuff but uh so speak up should be on movie for international viewing a story of one's own is not on is only available for replay or viewing in france or and i think in belgium and switzerland but uh, not overseas and uh a chocolate doll is the same thing the book hasn't been translated in english yet so uh, it's only available if you can read French, you know, like you can buy the book and get it sent anywhere, but you need to read French. So we're working on it. It's not easy to get your, your work distributed worldwide, especially when you're not Anglophone first. So, yeah. There's a lot of French adoptees also want everything to be in French. So that is also very useful because I think, uh, you know, a lot of uh, French adoptees actually uh, reached out to me and asked me if I would do this podcast in French. So there is a demand. So it's important to have uh, documentation and uh, for the French, the Francophone countries as well. So I'll put all the detail at the, on the show notes. So French and English, people can reach out what they, they want to see. So you've been doing this work for quite a long time. So I'm very interested to, to know what have you learned you know, especially in the adoption space and your activism world, what have you learned over the years that might be useful for our audience to to know in terms of adoption, identity, black stories? Uh, what can you share with us? <laughs> well, I think it's important to learn to rest. <laughs> I'm trying to to take better care of myself now. I think I'm I'm I've just turned 39 and I've moved back to Montreal a year, not a year and a half, but like 16 months ago. And it was really a move uh, motivated by the need to um, to quiet down and find a place where I could rest and uh, and feel safe, you know, because I no longer felt safe in France at all. And I was, I was too stressed. And so I think that, um, you know, like for me, the thing is, for instance, like I told you, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like quietly quitting uh, the world of adoption in the sense that, of course, it's always going to be like, it's part of my identity. Um, it's always going to be a part of my work. Like I'm, I'm quietly quitting, but I'm actually also developing a, 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 a TV fiction uh, that has to do with uh, a family where there's like black adoptees. So I'm never really quitting, but I think that's, that's the space where I want to explore those things more now is fiction. I want to have more freedom. Um, I also feel that, um, you know, like you have a personal path with your adoption story, even if you work on it. And for me, I've sort of like reached okay. the end of this path. I went to, the first time I went to try and have infos on my adoption file, I was 18. So it was like 21 years ago. Um, you know, that's when I found out that my mom was from Morocco and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then the, ch the law changed. So that was 2002. And it's actually the year where the law changed, where they said that Oh no, it was in 2012 then. So I went to see my file in 2002 
And in 2012, the law changed in France and they created an institution for people that was born uh, under secrecy so that we could ask for the state to try and track down our birth parents. So I um, applied for that thing in 2016. And then they find my birth mother in 2018, I think. And then I had like back and forth and trying to convince her to meet me. She didn't want to do it, et cetera, et cetera. So I never met her, but I got infos because uh, I had like health issues. I had um, fibroids and uh, I wanted to have a hysterectomy, but the doctors didn't want to do it because I didn't have my uh, medical history. And so I managed to get my medical history from my birth mother when the state found her. And so I could get my operation. And then in 2021, I had taken DNA tests in 2018. And in 2021, I found a birth brother. And then I met a birth brother and a birth sister in 2022 in the US. And then last April, I met my birth father uh, in Martinique. So I'm like, I'm sort of like, it's been 21 years of like doing this thing, you know, and, and that's a lot of administrative work, a lot of emotional labor, a lot of, you know, and a lot of therapy, a lot of, and while creating Adoptee Awareness Months and running it on my own for like three years, and while making a film about adoption and making a book about adoption. So now I'm kind of like, I am, um, you know, I think like that part of my life, like a chapter has been closed, you know, for me in April, when, when I met my birth father, I was like, okay, I've been to the end of my quest, you know, that, that was like, I needed to do this, but now I also need to do something else. You know? <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a good thing to maybe, I, I wish I'd had conversations with people who've been in the adoption world earlier on in my life, you know, so that you know that you can take breaks from it. You know, a lot of people in adoptive spaces are hurt. Uh, suffering from mental health issues, suffering from... So you also need to be aware of that, like whether you were in an adoptee group or whether you're an adopted person who's visible, which is my case, you know, like it can also trigger all sorts of reactions. And the thing is that like, it's not my job. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a mental health uh, specialist. I'm just like, I'm a filmmaker and a writer and, and an organizer to the best of my abilities on subjects where I'm often, you know, at the beginning of it. So in 2018, when I did Adopt Your Awareness Month, like you cannot raise funds in France for, for this. Nobody cares, you know? And it's just like, so building all those things from the ground up and not necessarily finding support, whether it's within the community or from the institutions, but then you can still get like the heated things back where people want to, to see you do more and you might not have more, you know? Like I suffer from, uh, you know, bouts of depression. Um, I had like the fibroids issues, then I had the hysterectomy and I had to recover from that. And, you know, like when you think those things happen, you're on your own. So I think that, you know, like sort of, um, uh, how to say, timing, but also dosing what you can and cannot. Do. And, you know, me, I tend to be like, if I'm doing something, I'm going to do it 100. And then my health deteriorates. And, and I'm like, you know, and I'm close to burning out and stuff. And then I, I wish I had, you know, learned to dose more. So if I was to say something to someone, it's like, really be aware and mindful of your abilities, of your health, of your energy. And when you feel like it's too much, you have a right to step back. I, I will say that I stepped back maybe a little too late for, for, my, for my health and my well-being. 
you know, so uh, now I'm stepping back. <laughs> but um, I think, yeah, I think that's a, uh, that's a thing. And that's why I'm also trying in my work to really appeal to institutions. I think it is unfair. It is not right. It is irresponsible from their side. You know, like the French state is organizing adoption. Uh, there are people whose work it is to deal with adoption. And by work, I mean, they're paid and they're often paid by our taxes. So why should I, an adoptee, do all this work for free, you know, uh, to uh, to try and uh, balance what the state has done wrong? You know, I think like as as adoptees, uh, adoptee groups, individuals and stuff, I think it's really important. I'm trying to do it every time I'm in interviews, for instance. I'm always trying to, uh, you know, like bring to the public the fact that this should be dealt with, with the, by the institutions. Why is it on our shoulders? Why in 2023, it is still on our shoulders to educate, to organize events? That's not how it should be done, you know, because when it was about getting us from overseas, from our families and putting us in white French families, the state was all over it. So why now that we are experiencing issues, wanting to go back, know what's happened, why is the state like, you know, like, that's that's uh, that's something I think that we really need to keep challenging over the years, you know. And for the youth, like we keep challenging it, but uh, maybe me a little less, you know. No, it's it's a very important. Those two points are very important. I think for adoptees to always remember the well-being come first. So to always think about thinking, taking rest, but also yeah, what you say about the role of organization and the state in this adoption space is really important so yeah we need thanks for the reminder uh, we need to keep that in mind i know you've already said all those things about what you would tell people about taking rest but my last question before i let you go is i wanted to find out and ask this to everyone who come on the, sh- on the podcast is what advice would you give to your younger self or young adoptees as they grow up oh well, to my younger self, I would say, you know, like, be be patient. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. I think I was so, yeah, I'm really uh, less now, but also because I'm getting old. I was always like a head, like, ah, yeah, let's go for it. And then be like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know, so I think I was really lucky in the fact that actually it took a long time for me to uh, meet my birth family or have, you know, the state finding my birth mother because I was so not ready when I was younger. And so being in the adoption field, uh, being in adoptee groups, going to conferences, I remember I started being really active, especially in North America in 2015. Uh, That's how I joined uh, here. There's a group called Librides or for adoptees. And that's also when I started doing conferences. And so I went to the States. and, And so that's when I met the most adoptees. And many of my friends had already gone through reunion. So, you know, having actual stories of what it's like to meet your birth family, you know, all the things, the weird things that you might experience, class difference, culture shock, you know, the the issues that your presence or your existence is going to raise in those families. So, for instance, by the time I, um, you know, uh, they found my birth mother, I didn't have um, sort of like a fantasy of how it would go when we meet. You know, I was like, I know this is going to be tough. I know, but even if I didn't have a fantasy, she said a few things to me that were extremely mean and hurtful, you know, and you still have to deal with it, you know. And it was the same when I met my birth father. My birth father is sort of like a very, uh, an adult child in the sense that 
he doesn't care about anybody but himself and he and he's like he's in his own world and, and he found my existence to be very funny you know like and that was not a fun moment for me you know that was not a that was and and even though I was already you know it was last year it was like a year and a half ago so I'd already been gone through you know seven years of therapy you know made my two films wrote my book uh, been in adoptee groups you know, run uh, adopt your awareness months for years, but it still hurts, you know? So I think this thing of like, there is no amount of preparation for what reunion, if it happens, will be. And you have to be ready that might never happen, uh, you know? And so to me, it's sort of like having other things besides adoption. You know, sometimes in adoptee groups, you got to see people whose whole life it is. And to me, it's not healthy. You know, like, I'm I'm so glad that I have outlets you know it creation really helps and i think that whether it's creation or whether it's um, healing practices you know i do fasting and walking retreats i meditate daily i train daily too like i do a lot of sports because that that helps with my mental health i go to the therapist and i have a creative practice you know like that is how I keep myself balanced. And sometimes I don't manage to keep myself balanced, you know, even if I do all the things. And even though I'm 39 now, you know. So I think realizing as early as possible that this is a very complex uh, identity you own and um, that with a lot of hurt and trauma attached to it, going to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy as early as you can. Like I started therapy when I was 27, which is not, you know, like it's not early. It's it's rather late. You know, now that I know how much it can help you, I wish I had been able to go earlier on in my life. But you know, like therapy, sports, you know, uh, also being really aware if you have addictions or if you like substances, just to to check yourself. Like for me, I don't feel that I'll ever be healed. You know that. I'm going to be one day this very balanced and calm person. I just feel that as time goes by, I have more and more systems in, in, in place so that if I experience a very strong bout of depression or if, like I have tools to not go to the darker places where I've been, uh, you know, in my younger years. But uh, I think, yeah, that too, seeing healing as a journey and not like as a destination, which has been like a late, I would say, understanding for me i was like in one day i will be cured and i will feel good you know uh <laughs> and now i'm like okay no okay so this day is not isn't happening <laughs> but what's happening is that as time go by i feel more calm i feel more at ease and when difficult moments are coming i know that i can overcome them i know that i can ask for help i know who to ask for help you know and so um i think that's that's what i would say is that it's okay to be depressed, to uh, to have, you know, uh, I don't know how you say that in English, uh, you know, like when you have food things, like du comportement alimentaire, you know, like there's a lot of things that you're going to find in adoptee communities. Yeah. So whether... Eating it's, disorder. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Eating disorders, depression, uh, suicidal assaults, addiction, you know, uh, it has to do with trauma. Uh, we have been traumatized as children uh, for various reasons, displacement, racism, uh, the type of family we grew up in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's okay to not be okay. And the issue is more like, how do we, how do we navigate life 
with this sort of like initial burden that's been placed on our shoulders yeah thank you very much that's uh, that's a great advice and i am really grateful for your time and i know you you've just said that you're stepping back from the adoption world so i am grateful that i i caught you just before you stepped completely back <laughs> just in time <laughs> yes <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your your story with us and um i will make sure that people have all your details in the show notes so they can follow you. Uh, and good luck for... Oh, when is your next book coming out, by the way? Oh, I'm not saying because oh, I need don't to have finished it. You don't first. have it yet. <laughs> okay. I might be late. So okay, no problem. We, we will follow it up. <laughs> Thank you so yeah. much again. Take care. Thank you for having me. This is Christelle Pellecure, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast, and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, and until next time, goodbye.